Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thank you for joining the Credit Sites No More Risk Better podcast. I'm your host today, Zach Griffiths, the senior U.S. investment grade strategist. Joining me today is Josh Estrob, our senior insurance analyst. Josh, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Zach, thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me. I think everyone knows insurance credit analysis is uh, it's routinely at the top of the Apple podcast charts. And I think everyone definitely knows that insurance credit analysts are our most fun at parties. So I think we're up for a record-breaking show here. So uh, you're welcome in advance. Well, I can't wait to shatter the previous record. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for taking the time. And thanks for hopefully topping the charts here. As you know, because I'm sure you've listened to every other podcast we've done up to this point, we start with an opener and an icebreaker. So I'm just going to lead right in with that. And if you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic, credit market, or sector-specific data for 2023, what would it be and why? I'd love to see how the credit cycle plays out. Obviously, a lot of investor focus at this time is on investment portfolio risk within insurance companies. And really, since the start of the pandemic, insurers have been simultaneously kind of more willing to re-risk their portfolios as compared to the very early days of the pandemic, where they were predominantly just buying kind of like A-rated credits in in counter-cyclical sectors, so think like tech or consumer staples and whatnot. But now we're seeing a move back into triple B securities, and in some cases, even high double B securities as well. They've been increasing exposure to, to private placements as well. And to some extent, there's probably some regulatory arbitrage at play with CLO exposure um, and their portfolios have meaningful exposure to office space as well. So if I had my crystal ball, I'd love to see how this economic cycle plays out and what the credit migration and potential investment portfolio losses could look like. I'd say the investment portfolio is certainly top of mind after what we've seen in the regional banking sector here in the U.S., so maybe we can dig into that in a little bit more detail. But before we do, let's start with your sector recommendation for 2023 and why you are positioned with that recommendation. So we're formally a market perform recommendation on both the life and PNC insurance sectors, but I actually really kind of hate the top-down approach because we have more of a bottom-up approach when we think about our name. So neither the life nor the PNC insurance sectors are monoliths. So by way of example, if we look at the PNC space right now, commercial-focused insurers are posting some of their strongest margins, either in recent memory or really in history. Compare that to the personal auto and home PNC space, where insurers are basically posting some of their weakest margins in history. And likewise, if you switch to the life insurance side of the business, higher rates are probably a tide that lifts all boats. But for example, the annuity-focused writers, they're contending with substantial market volatility right now, whereas let's say the group-facing life insurers, I'd say they probably have some pretty favorable macro tailwinds at their back right now. So if I'm going to do a top-down analysis, 
I think the spectrum of where we'd prefer to have more exposure to less exposure probably looks something like commercial PNC insurers and brokers, and then maybe the group life insurers, then maybe the retail slash annuity life insurers, and probably lastly, the personal auto insurers. That's very helpful as we kind of think through the different subsectors and what's kind of driving each of those different situations, I guess, on kind of margins, strong and weak for commercial and personal respectively, and then thinking about the broader rate environment and how that impacts the insurance industry broadly. Would you say that your call is more fundamental, technical, or based on relative value? And we can kind of dig into each of those individually in as much detail as you'd like. So from an aggregate sector basis, it's definitely very much a relative value decision. So what we typically do is evaluate the spread of the broader life and PNC insurance indices versus that of, let's say, the broader financial index and or the IG corporates index. But even with that, I caveat that the insurance sector, depending on how you want to slice and dice it, depending on what seat you're sitting in, that could have a longer average duration. So we'll try to keep that kind of context in mind as well. And then within the insurance sector, again, it's very much relative value. We'll try to bucket similarly rated and similar exposed, for example, commercial insurers versus personal insurers. We'll try to take a look at that and, and see how the relative value analysis has evolved and where we see the best value. So lots of different clients that we cater to. And so we try to do try to stick to the relative value approach, but there's a few different ways we can, we can evaluate it. Yeah, definitely. And so I guess from a technical perspective, are there any key driving factors there that you're thinking about, whether that be on the new issue side or the fundamental demand for bonds in your sector this year? I mean, to the extent that spreads start, let's say, significantly diverging from historical norms and in conjunction with her fundamental analysis in the insurance sector, that could contribute to a sector aggregate overall upgrade or downgrade. But largely in the past, there's been opportunities where we felt the sector's operating qualities, they've may have been particularly favorable or unfavorable for the sector, and that can cause us to act too. I mean, I think right at this very moment, spreads are generally fairly appropriate in our view. Now, the historical relationship, let's say, between financials and banks, right, as we're sitting here talking is a little bit murkier, given all that's going on in the banking sector. And we can kind of dig into that a little bit later, too. But all of those things are kind of elements that go into our our thought process and recommendations. So when you think about your recommendation, seeing spreads as perhaps fairly valued right now, although it's certainly been a volatile couple of weeks as we're recording this one on March 21st, what would you need to see to change your recommendation, whether that be an economic catalyst or sector slash issuer specific things that you are keenly focused on at the moment? Sure. So I think there's clearly some factors that could provide tailwind for the broader insurance sector. To the extent that we don't see the Fed cut rates in the foreseeable future, that would be a significant positive for both the life and PNC insurance industries. The life insurance industry, for example, not only does it improve investment slash reinvestment income, but it can also improve reserve adequacy or Likewise, you know, put another way, reduce reserve inadequacy risk, which can be one of the primary factors that leads to unfavorable spread development within the life insurance space. The PNC sector for the retail names, we'd probably want to see a moderation of inflationary cost trends before we got more bullish there. The auto sector, and by extension, the auto insurance sector has been hit particularly acutely hard by inflationary trends. And for commercial insurers, we're already quite bullish on that sector. But to the extent that we can continue seeing near record or record margins, that would be a favorable tailwind as well. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Inflation certainly is top of mind for just about everyone, I'd say, in the marketplace. We are expecting to see inflation continue to move lower this year just to provide a little strategy context. And with the Fed meeting upcoming, we do expect them to go 25 basis points more as they remain more focused on what's happening from a broader inflation perspective relative to all of the ructions that we've seen in the banking sector. And so I think when you kind of balance those, it could be particularly good for the insurance sector as, as we are kind of expecting them to hike rates one more time and maintain them there for the remainder of 2023. So certainly it could be beneficial for your life insurers. Moving on to new issue activity in 2023, what are you expecting from a base case perspective and what do you think will drive new deals or keep issuers on the sidelines throughout the rest of this year? I'm going to give you a little bit of a potentially long-winded answer here, so buckle up if you have to. I think, unfortunately for me, and I suspect a lot of the listeners to this to this episode, new issuance activities probably likely to be relatively muted in 2023. So, for better or worse, heading into the year, the U.S. PNC industry, by way of example, they had about eight billion of debt maturities, but beyond refi activity. Generally, we're seeing few tailwinds for additional debt issuance, especially given the higher interest rate environment. Really, we've seen kind of a lack of meaningful M&A activity in both the life and P&T insurance sector since that, for familiar listeners, the flurry of activity we saw, especially in 2021. Now, that said, you know, maybe there are a few potential sources for incremental issuance. So first, to the extent that certain insurers are, let's say, looking for rating agency equity credit to shore up existing ratings, or maybe there's some kind of operational hiccup along the way, there's always potential that we see incremental issuance of junior subordinated debt. So in the insurance space, you'll often see this 10 non-call 30 structure because certain rating agencies basically afford 25% equity credit up until 20 years to maturity for subordinated securities. So we saw Prudential come to market to refi junior subs recently. And to the extent that we continue to see economic turmoil, we could see more subordinated issuance as well. Second, to the extent we see operating losses, whether that's related to macroeconomic conditions or reserve charges or other idiosyncratic factors, that could contribute to issuance needs for the purposes of shoring up capital at the operating company level. And in fact, we did see that play out only recently with Lincoln National issuing about a billion dollars in preferred shares. Other potential sources include PCAPs, pre-capitalized securities that are being increasingly used in the insurance sector as kind of a quasi form of, of contingent capital. So this PCAP structure, it basically gives an insurer access to treasuries at the insurer's time of choosing, and it's treated by rating agencies as an off-balance sheet obligation. So kind of potentially an attractive source of contingent financing and access to treasuries. And then lastly, and specific to the life insurance space, is FABN issuance, funding agreement back notes, which is basically an OPCO level obligation that gets higher ratings than the senior hold co level because it's treated as an insurance policy for regulatory purposes. And so issuance of these insurance securities, it's been cut up in about half, I'd say, with higher interest rates kind of cooling off the market, but more active issuers today than, than really ever before, that market's not going to go to zero. So as we sit here now, we've seen about, you know, nine-ish billion of issuance. And in fact, I'm in speaking with you right now, I'm ignoring my primary responsibility of covering the insurance sector because MetLife is in the market with its own FABN uh, right now. So I hope you feel privileged, Zach. I'm feeling very privileged and I certainly appreciate some of the context around these different types of issuance, different types of securities that the insurance sector uses for various 
regulatory reasons as well. Have you seen a big reaction in your sector following everything that's happened with the Credit Suisse AT1s? And I know it's not a perfect direct comparison, but do you have any comment on that as far as kind of the initial market reaction? I know we're sifting through everything still to see where everything shakes out, but any thoughts there would certainly be topical. Sure. So positively, I'm done sifting. I've done all the sifting already. So I, I think I'm equipped to give you an answer here. I'm going to back up just a little bit. I think there's actually a really interesting kind of dynamic when it comes to credit investors in the insurance sector. And that's made even more pertinent by everything going on with Credit Suisse and you know the broader turmoil in the banking sector right now. Um, on a name-specific basis, insurers are extremely well diversified. The leading insurers are extremely well diversified, and we don't really see a lot of risk from the failure of any particular given financial institution, especially if it's like a, a regional ranking, let's say like a First Republic or whatnot. So many of the folks that I talk to in my seat here, they're primarily banks analysts, and either insurance is sort of like the bastard child they're forced to deal with or something, or, or they otherwise just spend less time on the sector. I'd say in many cases, they're just not as strong in the insurance sector as perhaps they are with other types of financials. Right now, I think the folks who are either lucky or good because they've overweighted insurers are probably sitting pretty relative to folks who are overweighted in the bank sector, for example. In fact, a lot of the client calls that I fielded recently, it's, it's basically with regards to investors looking to put some kind of cash to work that they've rotated out of banks and they're looking to get up to speed as quickly as possible in the insurance sector so they can react accordingly. So that's not addressing your question necessarily super directly, but sort of artificially, this, the sentiment on the insurance sector has improved in the context context of the total interest in putting money to work in the insurance sector. But at the same time, the overall level of concern is higher. Some of that unfamiliarity, some of that with asking good questions about actual risk factors. But either way, maybe it's not entirely justified, but combination of generalized uncertainty and maybe some, some amount of lack of familiarity with the sector, I think it's created opportunities and furthered interest in the space. So with that, then I think maybe I'm moving things around here in my notes and how I wanted to go about this, but sort of with that increased uh, interest in the sector with kind of the fallout from the banks that we've seen, do you have top picks or pans or thematic things that you've been recommending to some of these clients that maybe were not previously as up to speed on insurance as they would have liked to have been coming into this period of volatility and turmoil for the banks? Sure. So this is their bread and butter, right? So happy to do a quick picks and pans list here, but uh, not going to do it for free. You owe me all your Credit Suisse AT1s in exchange. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I think uh, yeah. I can make that work. But let me start on the life insurance side. So I think one of our top plays right now is low triple B Unum. So with a 10-year treasury really anywhere north of the 3% area, it's mitigating a significant amount of the credit profile pressure from the company's legacy, meaning runoff, long-term care insurance business, which is the single biggest credit profile overhang they have, even though they haven't written this business in about a decade at this point. But regardless, point being, Unum is likely to fully fund its... Um, LTC, long-term care premium reserve deficiency by the end of 2023. And in our view, that's going to transition its holding company from operating on roughly a cash flow neutral basis to clearly a cash flow positive basis. So I'd say in prior years, we were a little bit more cautious about long duration plays or anything outside of kind of short to intermediate term on Unum. But at this point, we're increasingly confident across the debt capital structure, including by tenor. So in our view, kind of the short version for Unum, ratings risk and negative headline risk are substantially lower now. 
And actually, we think the credit profile is probably from a ratings perspective on an upwards trajectory. I'll do on the PNC side, I'm going to give you a little bit of an off the board pick and then more of a traditional pick. Our off the board pick on the PNC space is financial guarantor assured guarantee, which is one of our top plays in the senior unsecured space in the, in the US insurance sector. So just to put this out there, liquidity can be fairly thin, but it's a high rated insurer that basically trades wide to the peer group. And we've stress tested this company left, right and center. And we really like the value here. So just to give you a little bit of backstory, you may remember the name from the financial crisis when it was one of the few that survived somewhat ironically, because it didn't have sufficiently high ratings to insure a lot of RMBS securities in the midst of the financial crisis. But of course, the asset management team, that was all skilled. But anyway, then later, you may recall them from the headlines because they had a lot of Puerto Rico exposure because they were insuring the Commonwealth's debt crisis there, basically. But at this point, Puerto Rico exposure is substantially lower. It's probably like something like less than a percent of its net par outstanding that is guaranteed. And in the context of the overall insured portfolio, that Puerto Rico risk factor is basically substantially lower now than it has been at any point in the recent past. So even beyond that, um, we see it as very unlikely we're going to see significant default impairment in the insured public finance portfolio, even in consideration of looming macro weakness. And even in the midst of the pandemic, there were basically no material losses there at all. So that's probably our off the off the wall pick. But if you if you need a more traditional PNC name, I'm going to point to Liberty Mutual. I'd say we're probably likely to see some near-term profitability pressure for Liberty Mutual just because they do have a sizable retail auto and home business, but they've also got a very sizable commercial operation as well. And in our view, that's going to clearly buy them the time they need to improve their personal lines margins. And given the company's ability to kick up substantial capital to the parent, it's got extremely strong operating company and regulatory capital levels, and it's offering incremental spread versus the peer group. And so we continue to think for the moment, it's very attractively priced. I don't know that I necessarily expect it to tighten in the very near term to the peer group because, you know, they are a mutual. They don't have that equity backstop and maybe leverage metrics are slightly weaker than peers. I think the incremental carry there is worth it. And so... The way we kind of describe Liberty Mutual, and they're an extremely well-diversified insurer, both on a geographic perspective and a product line perspective, although maybe they're not the best in class in any of those geographies or lines of business, but it's good enough and investors are getting paid for it. So that's the trade we like right now. Awesome. That's extremely helpful. And just to sum that up, so we like Unum in kind of a more traditional life insurer perspective, our off-the-board call is assured guarantee, kind of recognizing maybe some concerns on the liquidity side, but definitely one of our highest conviction given the stress testing work you guys have done. And then from a carry trade perspective, Liberty Mutual. Did I I hit all that? Nailed it. Perfect. And so, I mean, we can't have our picks without our pans. So what's kind of on the do not fly list? Hopefully not us. So on our PANS list right now, on the life insurance side, I'll start there again. And even though it does trade wide to the peer group, we're really cautious about overweight positions and insurers with particular equity market sensitivity, given large variable annuity liabilities. So I'm thinking of Bright House in particular. And again, I'm going to reiterate that I'm cognizant of the incremental yield versus the broader life peer group. And I'll give them credit where credit's due. Their hedging program did protect the company's balance sheet during you know, the worst of the early days of the pandemic experience. But at the same time, the way we look at it is the benefits of maintaining its credit profile strength have basically all accrued to shareholders because the company does pursue a relatively aggressive buyback approach, given their internal assessment, at least, of a steep discount in share price to intrinsic value. And so 
just to throw some numbers out there, I'd say the company did well in 2022. They delivered statutory, meaning regulatory profitability of about a billion dollars, but at the same time, regulatory capital declined by about 1.3 billion over the course of the year. And some of that was like one-time DTA write downs. And some of that was like interest rate headwinds that could reverse in, in the near term. But long-term, we're basically still seeing this downward trend in regulatory capital ratios as, as the benefits of profitability basically accrue to shareholders. And that kind of leaves us asking what's out there for a catalyst for outperformance. It seems either limited to favorable equity market development, which is kind of outside their control, and you might as well buy their equity if that's your base case, or maybe the sufficient passage of time that enables some of their new business that they're writing to overwhelm some of the less desirable policies that they inherited from MetLife back in a spinoff about five years ago. So we're a pass on Bright House right now on the life insurance side. And then back to the PNC side again, not big fans of Allstate at the moment. I think for those listeners who watch TV also, I think their mayhem character kind of turned on the creator. You know, we're kind of confident that Allstate's going to eventually be able to return to its historic leadership position with regards to auto underwriting profitability. But the timeline for margin restoration is it's probably pushed out to at least year end 2023. And its most recent fourth quarter results suggest that the time frame could actually be pushed out even farther than that, depending on the trajectory of inflationary cost pressures, litigation trends, catastrophe losses, all sorts of these other factors. So given its substantial operating losses over the last year, it finds itself suddenly under significant downgrade pressure. Each of Fitch, Moody's, S&P, they're all revising their outlooks to negative. So you've got this combined impact of an increase in leverage and what's starting to resemble persistent and unfavorable reserve development. That only kind of further adds to the ratings risk. So we'd prefer to take our exposure in the PNC space with, with names more operationally levered to the commercial sector, like I was talking about earlier. And I think uh, the commercial sector has fundamental operating conditions that are substantially more favorable than for names like Allstate right now. I just haven't seen the spread widening at Allstate that I would expect given all the pressure they're under right now. So I'll pause here, throw it back to you. That's great. Thanks, Josh. I, that really walks through some great key picks and pans for our clients to take away. I feel like we've hit a lot of the key points. One question that I've been really curious about for each of these interviews I've done is what keeps you up at night when you think about your sector and your recommendation? I know we're overall market performance, a little bit more nuanced for the, the different facets of the insurance industry, but what, if anything, right now keeps you up at night when you think about the rest of 2023 for the insurance sector? Yeah. So given kind of where we are in this economic cycle, and I kind of touched on this earlier, but for the life insurance sector, one of the impacts of the influx of interest from the private equity space back in, let's call it 2021-ish, it's kind of forcing a lot of insurers, whether or not they have a PE relationship or not, to adopt certain PE style practices. So for example, increasing allocation of private credit and structured securities. So if you think about it, those those trades are designed to increase investment portfolio yield at the expense of liquidity. And theoretically, that's totally fine for an insurer. That's what they do all the time. They're willing to trade away liquidity for yield. They're trying to match the duration of liabilities with the duration of assets. But what could be problematic is that it's forcing all insurers sort of along this increased illiquidity track in order to not fall behind. Because if you think about it, eventually, if you fall behind on investment portfolio yield over time, that's going to translate into in a given insurance company either needing to raise price or reduce benefit ri richness, both of which have negative implications for competitiveness. And so kind of by way of example here, I'm going to use Aflac, an insurer that has no PE relationship, but it's putting approximately half of its new money into USD private credit compared to 
an existing portfolio with allocation of about 10 to 15% in private credit. I'm not saying Aflac is necessarily going to indefinitely keep up that 50% allocation pace because I'm sure they'll reach their steady state desired allocation at some point, but it is illustrative of the fact that the Aflac and others, they're trying to keep from falling behind in terms of investment portfolio capabilities. And so given where we are in the economic cycle, you know, that's a risk factor that's going to be looming, I'd say for the foreseeable future and, and something that I'm thinking about. On the PNC side, I mean, it kind of goes without saying, but catastrophe loss risk, I think like hurricane events, windstorms, fires, I mean, that's always part and parcel with the sector's risk factors. There's no escaping it, but it is true that, and weather events are becoming increasingly extreme and more frequent. The problem is there's really no way to model the risk factor, given that by nature, catastrophe loss modeling is backwards looking. It's not impossible out there that we kind of envision this year where you got multiple significant hurricane events while we're in this poor macroeconomic environment. Maybe that could start forcing the sale of some securities at a loss, and maybe that translates to incremental ratings pressure or, or more generalized credit profile pressure. And so if I'm going to point to an immediate risk factor, Maybe I'll say that I don't share the same degree of confidence a lot of management teams have expressed with regards to their timeline for restoration of auto insurance profitability, so like I was mentioning with Allstate earlier. So maybe one kind of medium term, one kind of short term a risk factor here for the PNC sector. Great. Yeah. Well, I certainly don't know anything about forecasting weather. I feel like forecasting the financial markets is, is tough enough, but I'm going to take one of these and drill in kind of the risk factor or the risk that you identify for the life insurance sector, kind of these PE style practices. One of the questions that we've gotten a ton recently is sort of what's what's the next shoe to drop with respect to kind of the issues that we've now seen in the banking sector. You've seen issues with crypto. Is there anything in particular, Josh, I'm putting you on the spot. I know this isn't really your bread and butter, but is there anything in particular to you that's within these life insurance investment portfolios that you are most concerned about? Or are you like the rest of us kind of just waiting to see and, and have plenty of concerns, but not a lot of visibility into what exactly is the next shoe to drop? So I'd say that in the leading insurers, they're extremely well diversified. So that's clearly going to be a mitigant if you have you know stress in a given part of the economy. Now that said, the investment portfolios kind of start looking pretty similar once you get north, once you get close to like, let's say 500 billion or something in investment portfolio exposure, because if you want to be diversified, you're basically invested in every sector. So that could contribute to some kind of more, I'll call it systemic risk to the extent that you have to see insurers en masse start transitioning out of a given sector or asset class or what have you. Just, just, by way of example, and I'm not saying this is my base case analysis, but for example, within mortgage lending, office space makes up a little bit more than 20% of that portfolio. So already you're seeing some REIT management teams kind of talk about the commercial mortgage market kind of slowing down and the transaction market kind of slowing down. So if you now suddenly have insurers, whether it's office real estate or an entirely different asset class, all looking to kind of exit from a given sector or asset class at the same time, that could have more significant implications for investors, not just in the insurance space, but kind of beyond as well. We saw a little bit of this in the other direction, in the favorable direction, when regulators were kind of starting to think about revising capital charges for different investment ratings. And one of the somewhat counterintuitive outcomes was that the capital charges for high double B investments were reduced slightly. And if you think about insurers with their like $5 trillion investment portfolio, it wouldn't have taken a whole lot 
of increased allocation from the insurance companies to kind of have a permanent impact on maybe the spread relationship between triple B and double B securities. So as we think about kind of risk factors, it's really what we're thinking about is how insurer practices are going to be evolving in general, because that can have broader implications for investors kind of across sectors as opposed to just the insurance space. Josh, this has been awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time to catch up. I think there are a lot of awesome takeaways for our clients to get from this podcast. So thanks again, Josh Esterov, our senior insurance analyst. And thank you all for joining the Credit Sites No More Risk Better podcast. Thanks, Zach. See you at the top of the charts. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.